Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Well, this evening we want to look at Acts chapter 14, verse 19, down to verse 27, 28. There's a lot of geography in this passage, isn't there? Look at some of the names of the cities and areas, regions that Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas rather, had passed through on this return journey of their first missionary voyage together. Uh, It's really helpful uh, to go to the end of your Bible sometimes. There was a time, you know, whenever. Whenever you would come, whenever you're in school, uh, at once a year they would bring some minister in to examine the class on religious education. I remember it happening at school, and we all were told to sit up good, and the minister would go from class to class and he would ask questions, and we were supposed to answer them, things that we'd learnt in primary school. And um, the minister came in and he stood at the front of the class and he asked some very elementary questions that the boys and girls could answer. Like, what's the first book in the Bible? Of course, the children all put their hands up and one of them said, it's the book of Genesis, sir. Yes, he And he gave them a wee bookmark. And another one, he, he said to them, um, what's the first book in the, in the New Testament? And they all put their hands up and another child answered, book of Matthew. And then he said, and what's the last book in the Bible? And the hands all went up again. And this wee boy was sitting excitedly right on the very edge of his seat. And he had his hand up and the minister couldn't really do anything else but ask him. So he says, well, well, what what do you think is the last book in the Bible? And the wee boy says, please, sir, it's the book of Maps. Well, the book of maps is not part of the scriptures, but it can be very, very useful. And sometimes if you look at the book of maps, that atlas at the back of your Bible, you'll see a map of Paul's missionary journeys. And it's really helpful to trace the journey and to get an idea of the lands through which they were traveling. If you haven't got a book of maps at the back of your Bible, go onto the internet. Look up the website www.saltyscrivener.uk and I've posted those maps there along with all the notes for the sermons. So you can look them up and you can follow the journeys of Paul and see where those uh, particular places that are mentioned here are on the book of maps. Now, let's get to work. In Acts chapter 14, verse 19 to 27, we have the ending, the conclusion of Paul's first missionary journey. And I want to look at it under three headings. Here Paul is left for dead. And I want you to see that that requires courage for discipleship. Paul is faithful in his service. He's confirming the churches and then Paul is back to where he started back to base to give a report 
and to be accountable for what the Lord has done. Left for dead, verse 19 and verse 20. And there the scriptures say, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. In the town of Caledon in County Tyrone, where I was a temporary pastor for a couple of years, there's a magnificent tree standing at the crossroads in the middle of the village. And around the tree is a little wall, a really old wall, crumbling a bit. And it was the base of that tree, according to local custom, that John Wesley preached in 1771. It was the second of Wesley's three visits to the town of Caledon. On his first visit, he had been warmly welcomed by the local Church of Ireland rector, Reverend Charles W. Congreve. He'd been given warm hospitality and he'd been put up in the home and the minister had invited Wesley to open the new Anglican church there and had offered Wesley the use of the church building to conduct his meetings. On that second visit, the Methodist society in the village had grown and the local Church of Ireland minister was now recognising that this was a kind of a threat to his authority over the people who met in the village. Wesley found that when he returned for the second visit, there was no hospitality, there was no welcome, and there was no offer of a building. Wesley instead decided to preach in the street. That's what he did. And I'm told that he stood at the base of that tree and gathered the people around them, and he held his services. And he spoke, I'm told, to a very subdued and muted congregation, realizing that the links with Anglicanism were being slowly severed. That was not always the case. Methodist preachers of those days, including Wesley, were very often stoned and beaten when they preached. One such preacher in the south of Ireland, out in the west of Ireland, discovered that the best way to begin any open-air meeting, thinking of last week, was to preach in front of the local grocery store, which was generally owned by a Roman Catholic. And he knew that if you preached in front of the local grocery store, the Catholic people who were listening to you wouldn't stone you because they were afraid of breaking the windows in the grocery store. And that got him spared from many stoning. Wesley himself had been chased by mobs through the town of Enniskillen. And these were mobs of Protestants. By the time Wesley returned for his third visit to Caledon in 1785, a little stone meeting house had been built. And the crowds were attending the meetings in that meeting house. They were such vast crowds that they actually had to remove the pews and the benches inside the meeting house and cram the people in standing up. They didn't know anything in those days about social distancing. And that was the very church where later on I was the temporary minister. Now we might not agree with Wesley's theology, but you have to admire the courage that characterized those early Methodist preachers. 
They were frequently abused. They rode about on horseback. They were chased out of towns. They were stoned and spat at, and nothing stopped them from declaring the gospel. When the mob stoned the early Methodists, it was nothing new. When Paul was preaching at Lystra, a group of Jews arrived and they'd travelled from Antioch and Iconium, and we don't know why they came. Maybe they were agitators who had heard rumours that Paul was still preaching Christ and they were determined to stop him. We don't know. But whenever they arrived there, they began stirring up the rabble. They persuaded the multitudes. It was pure rabble rousing. Verse 19, they persuaded the people. They whipped them up and it became little more than a lynch mob. And it was easy to do. It's actually quite easy to encourage people to violence and to loot and to riot. If you get a crowd of people gathered together and you have somebody with a tiniest smattering of a gift of oratory, they can soon persuade people to loot shops. We saw this during the Black Black Lives Matter demonstrations in England earlier this year. In America, the Extinction Rebellion, people were... Uh, destroying historic statues. It was just simply a matter of getting enough people out, raising their passions, and you can get them to loot and to riot and to hurt others by the very force of their emotions. And they rarely stop. Check the facts. So the angry mob, whipped up into a frenzy, began to stone Paul to throw rocks and stones at him, to the extent that they must have even knocked him unconscious. Don't don't think for one moment that this is similar to the judicial stonings that occurred by way of execution in the Old Testament, or even among the Muslims today. When those judicial stonings happened, the subject of the stoning was part of... was, was, was declared guilty by a judicial trial of some sort and was dead at the end of the ordeal. There was no doubt about it. Paul wasn't. The rowdy crowd thought he was. They thought him to be dead, supposing, verse 19, supposing he had been dead. So there was, Paul wasn't dead, but this rowdy crowd of rabble thought he was. And that's when reality must have begun to sunk in, begin to sink in. Because even though this town was a distant, distant outpost from Rome, Lystra was a Roman colony. And Roman law was severe, especially on people who rioted, especially on disturbing the peace. And so the, Paul, the mob saw Paul lying in the street. And they came to their senses to attack, to kill a Roman citizen is a capital offence in the Roman Empire. So they realised, what have we done here? We have killed a Roman citizen. Let's get rid of the evidence. And they dragged his body. You can see it here in the scriptures. They drew him out of the city. 
They drew him. They didn't lift him and carried him. They grabbed him, probably by the legs, and they trailed him out of the city and left him out in the countryside, probably in the hope that the Roman authorities would think that he'd been attacked by robbers and left dead. Paul wasn't dead. His friends surrounded him, perhaps out of concern, maybe just to protect him from further aggression from the mob. And when he came to and realised that those around him were friends, he did something truly incredible. And here's this amazing courage. Look at verse 20. Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up. And came into the city. The place where he's just been stoned. To the extent that he was knocked out. And thought to be dead. The place where an angry mob had just stood round him and tossed bricks at him. The place where he had been aggressively misused where he had been trailed by the legs out of the city and left dumped out in the countryside and he gets up and he shakes off the dust of that road and he goes straight back to the place where the abuse take place do you know if he was in northern ireland what would we say about paul if he was from here in County Antrim, what would we say about him? We'd say Paul, Paul was brave and throng. He couldn't stop him. He never gave up. He got straight up and he dusted off his, his, his coat and his clothes and he went straight back in. He dug his heels in and he stared and he grew bolder. And he did that over and over again. We've already seen him doing that, continually going back to the synagogue, even when lies were being spread about him. He, Paul just simply doesn't give up. Now, after being brutally physically attacked, He goes straight back to the place where that attack took place. Left for dead, courage for discipleship. Faithful in service, confirmation of the churches. Back to verse 20. The next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, back again, and to Iconium and to Antioch. Derbe is the furthest point in this first missionary journey. You'll see that when you look at the map. Luke simply records that when they had preached the gospel there, many people came to Christ and were discipled. And we don't know how many sinners found Christ at Derbe, but we know that a new church was born. And we know that it became a strong church, that later on, one of the men of that church, a man called Gaius, joined with Paul on his mission through Macedonia, 
where Paul was not only preaching, but he was lifting a collection for the relief of the church at Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 4, it says, And Supiter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tyche, and Tychius and Trophinius of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. James Montgomery Boyce here suggests that at this time, the church at Derba is represented by Gaius because it's big enough and it's prospering enough to send a substantial donation of its own. So what's happening now is that the missionaries are on their return journey. And as they go back along that route, they revisit all the cities of Asia Minor, what we nowadays call Turkey, where they have been before. As they travel along, there's now new churches meeting. These weren't social visits. It says that they, verse 22, that they were confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must go through much tribulation, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. These were purposeful visits. Luke, the historian, gives us three objectives for Paul as he goes through those churches. It was to encourage the new believers, to strengthen the souls of the disciples, to encourage them to continue in the faith. It's what all new Christians need. And those of us who are longer on the road too, we need to be reminded that our strength comes from the Lord, not from ourselves. Strength to persevere, whatever our trials may be, whatever may come our way. Christianity is not a bed of roses. It's not a promise of your best life now. Some of those Christians would be arrested and tortured. Some would be thrown to the lions in Asia Minor. Some would be burned alive. But they must keep their eyes on Christ and keep going on along the road right until the very end. In his sermon to the Hebrews, Paul would preach, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul's telling the churches what to expect. He was a kind of a visual aid, wasn't he? He's just been beaten. His body's covered with bruises from the stones. His clothes are ripped and torn, and he's maybe limping and stiff and sore and he's standing in front of them telling them what they're going to expect and people will have come to the gatherings and they've looked at the apostle Paul and they'll be shocked at what has happened to him since they last saw him only a short time before he's standing at the, in front of them looking like someone who has been crippled by adversity and he's saying if you're going to follow Christ this is what you're going to look like too going to be just like me. You're going to be beaten and abused, stoned in the streets, fed to wild animals. You ready for the challenge? 
Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself every day, take up his cross, follow after me. So he'd want to encourage the new churches, the new Christians. And he would want to manage their expectations. How through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. You see, anyone can go with the flow. Anyone can agree with the latest beliefs and philosophies of the age. It takes courage to be different. It takes courage to stand out from the others around you, to make yourself stand out, to loudly proclaim that you belong to Christ. And even as Christians, we find that when we take our stand for gospel truth and for theological purity, as best as we can do that. I only say that because during the week, a friend of mine, a long-time friend of mine, a friend I've had from childhood, who belongs to a very lively Baptist church, said to me, are you still going to churches with very few people at them? That wasn't exactly what she said, but that's the gist of it. You're weird. That's what she said. You're weird. Well, you know, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. Manage their expectations. Don't expect people to like you for being a Christian. And don't expect other Christians to like you because you try to do things in accordance with God's word. The encouragement of the new churches to to build them up in the faith, to manage the expectations that they will have for the future, and to establish discipline within them. Verse 23, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Paul had another task to perform, not just to encourage the new believers in the midst of their persecution, not just to manage their expectations of what life as a believer was going to be like for them, but to regulate the churches in a biblical manner. All these churches were new. All of them had new Christians in them. All of them needed structure and leadership. All of them needed church discipline. You see, when we talk about church discipline, sometimes people talk, think we're talking about uh, discipline in the sense of dealing with wrongdoers, but we're not. Church discipline is the governance of the church. It's the way that the church is ordered in government. And churches need structure and leadership. And they need to be taught. And men would need to be appointed to do that. And the alternative would be a free-for-all. Otherwise known as congregationalism. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I really objected to in modern congregationalism not in all the congregational churches but certainly in some of them is that they have more in common with the congregationalism of R.W. Deal Cars Lane, Birmingham in the 19th century 
and I have with John Owen and the Puritans. They think of congregationalism as democracy, where the church gets to decide things like what worship we will, what worship will be like, what what hymns we will sing. Ah, here's a great idea. We'll 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 have a supplementary hymn book. I had this in the church. We have a supplementary hymn book. It was before my time. And what we'll do is we'll get everybody in the church who wants to take part to give us their favourite hymn. And we'll put them all together into this book and we'll sing them and then everybody will feel included in the worship. So they handed me this book, which had been printed years before, and I looked at it. Seriously, you can't sing those things. We misses M's hymn. If I was a butterfly, you know, uh, the church is not governed that way. When we think of congregationalism, and you know, not all congregational churches are Baptists, but all Baptist Baptistic churches are congregational. We're thinking of individual churches who are complete in themselves. Churches that are units, worshipping the Lord, seeking his face. Believers who are meeting together for worship and evangelism, the teaching of God's word and the discipline of the church. Talking about a free-for-all, where everybody gets to do what they want. And if you can't do it in this wee meeting, you can do it in that other wee meeting. Talking about that. Paul ordained elders in the churches. The proper method of government is for autonomous churches to have a structure of eldership, a plurality of elders governing the church in matters spiritual. So the church is not directionless. And those elders should presumably have been studying God's word and been, well, there are lists of qualifications for elders and for deacons given in the scriptures, and we should be sticking to those. And we should be calling elders who will pastor the church in a responsible manner and who are apt to teach and who are able to lead the congregation in a spiritual manner. And when we have called them and ordained them to their task, we should let them get on with that task until such times as for disciplinary reasons they need to be removed. That should be the case. Other than that, when the church meeting, calls a pastor, the pastor is faithfully preaching the word, the elders are faithfully preaching the word, leading the church in spiritual directions, and that's what they're there for. And they should be getting on with the task, not being hindered by people wanting to do their own thing and demanding the right to do their own thing. So Paul appointed elders in every church. This is his ecclesiology. A plurality of elders to lead and rule the local church. And if you look, this is for the benefit of the church. 
This is not a top-down thing. This is not something that starts with an archbishop or, 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 a, or a pope or a bishop and then goes down to the local presbyter working in, in the, as a priest in the local church. It's nothing of the sort because if you notice the wording here that he ordained them elders. He ordained the elders not for himself as the overarching elder, lest you should think that, He ordained those elders for the benefit of the people who were in the congregations. Not a single man, not a vote among the wider congregation in spiritual matters, but a multiple number of men responsible for the spiritual welfare of the believers. I say men. In the word of, in the sense of men, you understand. So Paul has gone back along the route that he came. And as he has gone, he has regulated those churches that were established as he preached there earlier. The churches are now meeting. He has encouraged them. He has managed their expectations and he has established church discipline within the parameter of the local church. And when that is done, in verse 26, he thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. One final mission in Pamphylia in verse 24, verse 25. And then across the sea, across the Mediterranean to arrive at Antioch. And it's time for the missionaries to give their report to the church that commissioned them. Two final important points. The first one is that the work has been done. It's complete. Uh, In verse 27, when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them. And verse 26, the work which they had fulfilled. Paul's missionary life wasn't over, not by any means. But this journey's over. The mission that they've been sent on has been completed. Unlike John Mark, Paul and Barnabas have seen it through and they have finished the work that was entrusted to them and it would have been easy to give up and go home many times over that journey. Long, long, dusty roads, tiresome journeys on foot, danger from wild animals, stonings and persecutions, trials and tribulations. But Paul and Barnabas on, And at the end of his life, he could write to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, have kept the faith. Finally, at the end of this missionary journey, I want you to see that the glory all belongs to God. Verse 27. They rehearsed what the Lord had done with them. That must have been an exciting missionary meeting, wasn't it? It's 
Sometimes it's good to have a visiting missionary to come talk about, give a report of the Lord's work in foreign lands. And it's good when we hear reports of people coming to faith in Christ, churches being built up. I wonder was that what they were waiting for? As they heard that Paul and Barnabas had got off the ship and they'd be convening a meeting at the church at Antioch, their, their home church. Let's go and hear. Let's go and hear about these, these journeys and these foreign places and strange people with strange languages and stories of how Paul bravely won over the heathens. If they went for that, they must have been disappointed because when Paul and Barnabas stood up, they gave all the glory to the Lord. It was him who did the real work. Paul and Barnabas had simply obeyed the Lord and been faithful. It was the Lord who opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So the first missionary journey is over. Paul and Barnabas are back home in Antioch. If you would like, they're on furlough, to use a word that's become commonplace recently. They're staying there for a long time. It says in verse 28, there they abode long time with the disciples, resting, getting their strengths back, Preaching, fellowshipping, preparing for what's to come. A challenge to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. And when that challenge is dealt with, another missionary journey to bring the gospel to us in Europe.